it's old timey crimey. And Amber just got a weird little chill. <laughs> I think your house is haunted now. That's funny because sometimes I think that too <laughs> every once in a while. So right before we started recording, her door opened by itself. And then I just got like a random chilly willy. <laughs> so um, lots of fun things happening. And if you hear anything in the background going, then uh, you know that sounded like Dory talking whale on Finding Nemo yeah a little bit although I did in a recording I think it was when Barb was here one of the times the Libarbian and I was editing the recording and I heard like a whispering in the background while she was talking I couldn't tell what it was saying but it was a female voice and it freaked me out Oh, goody. So we have a third guest host tonight. We don't know who it is. And hopefully they don't murder us. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. But then if they do, then you, our faithful listeners, must make an old-timey, crimey podcast about us and the ghost who murdered us. Because, of course, the ghost would be old-timey. So that still works. Yeah. Still works. Totally on theme. So we do have a story for you today that is not about a ghost. It is about a woman and her egg. Kinda. Kinda, kinda. Before we get to that, you really should go over and check out our Patreon, where we are creeping up on 100 old, tiny, crimey bonus episodes. And Amber told me a fantastic story today about the Mayflower murderer. Today's episode is titled Witchy Woman on my notes now. Uh, I have a thing with alliteration. Mine, I, I had a little typo when I first typed out the, the title, and so I just went with it. It's, it's the Yorkshire watch. <laughs> <laughs> the story is all about a watch that and did an some egg. bad things, and an egg that also did some bad things. So yeah, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. You can come over there, get not only those four you know, weekly bonus episodes, but also each month we bring you an extra extra where we sit down with a special guest and we talk about crimes on certain themes. We still need to pick one for this month. <laughs> so if you like crimes and the sound of our voices, uh, go on over to Patreon. Yeah, if you're, if you're running out of material to binge, there's plenty over there for you. So should we talk about a woman and her egg? We should talk about a woman and her creepy egg. Yes, yes. So first, before we get started on that, I want to talk a little bit, just a quick overview of the history of witchcraft in Britain. It had been made a capital offense in Britain in 1563, and women and men, but mostly women, usually old, almost always poor, were accused of witchcraft and tortured and killed throughout all of Western Europe for centuries. It was estimated that 200,000 thousand were persecuted from the late 15th century to the mid 18th century which was when uh mary the of the egg was born so pretty much any woman that ever pissed off a man was accused of being a witch and tortured and murdered if they just didn't like the way you look if you were from a vulnerable population yeah all of these were great reasons to be called a witch the last witch executed on english soil was in 1685 that was actually a set that was the Devon Witches. And in 1727, the last witch execution in Great Britain was carried out in Scotland. And this is the very sad case of Janet Horn, which may or may not have even really been her name because they also just would call witches Janet or Jenny Horns. 
Oh, that was just kind that of was a the name. Jane Doe. Yeah, it was the Jane Doe bridges exactly. Now Janet Horn was probably beginning to suffer from dementia, and her daughter also had this this physical abnormality that affected her hands and her feet. So of course the neighbors decided that Janet must have turned her daughter into a horse that she would ride off at midnight to do her dastardly spells, but then was so bad at doing these dastardly spells that she wasn't able to undo the hooves that her daughter had on her hands and feet. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's some twisted mental gymnastics to do this. Both were found guilty and sentenced to death by burning. The daughter actually escaped. She rode off into the sunset like a steed. Apparently, yes. If you ask any of the neighbors, sure. (laughs) If you ask anyone with two brain cells to rub together, no. She did escape. We don't know where to. We don't know anything about her life. Janet did not. She was tarred, feathered, and paraded through the town in a barrel and then burned to death, possibly still in that tar barrel. And the really super sad in addition to all the other sadness there, is that she was very confused about what was going on around her. And she was actually warming herself at the fire before being burned with it. She thought, oh, hey, a nice fire to warm myself with. And they were like, yes, and also, we're going to do this other thing. You're, you're just giving me that blank stare of blinking. What is happening? I'm trying to imagine her warming herself by a fire because when they tarred and feathered, the tar was boiling hot. And that was excruciatingly painful. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if she was in shock at that point, because when you go to shock, you feel cold. Mm -hmm. So she might have been going into shock from having her flesh burnt off with the tar. And I just, I feel so bad for her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the part about her warming herself at the fire could very well be apocryphal, for all we know. Yeah. Somebody saw her reach toward the fire for whatever reason, or maybe she was waving at somebody. And then the next thing you know, at the pub that night, they're telling the story of how Janet Horn was warming herself at the fire before she was tossed into it. You know how things can get twisted and turned yeah. around. I mean, for God's sakes, these people thought she was turning her daughter into a horse. Yeah. I don't believe a word they say. some of these stories are a little uh, <laughs> not true. Yeah, exactly. I do have a poem about... Janet Horn, if you will allow me. She's giving me the look. I don't I don't have a choice in this matter. <laughs> I know it. You do have a choice. I'm actually excited to hear this poem, though. Okay. This is Janet Horn by Edwin Morgan. And I might mispronounce the location that this was taking place in. In Doorknock there was a burning with no sign of mourning that January morning. This was the final solution, the last execution of an ancient persecution. For they called it witchcraft, an old woman's stitchcraft, or a bit of leechcraft. Century of enlightenment, still thurled to torment, thumbscrews, and judgment. Janet made a pony of her daughter, says the story, rode her for Satan's glory. They tarred and feathered her, bound and gathered her, screaming and barreled her, burning in the peat smoke while the good doorknock folk paused briefly for a look. Dear God, were you sleeping? You were certainly not weeping. She was not in your keeping. Today there is a garden where a stone stands guard on, the spot she was charred on. Oh, heart never harden. Wow. It's a very interesting meter, and I like it, actually. There is actually a stone there to mark the spot where she was burned to death. So still to this day, 
Then in 1735, getting back to witchcraft as a whole, an act was passed that anyone who professed to tell fortunes or do occult stuff could be jailed for up to a year with quarterly appearances in the pillory. So, you know, whenever you get your financial statements from your stocks, then after that you're sent to the stocks. That came out of nowhere. I'm telling you, it's not in my notes. Didn't think of it until now. Now, this was 30 years before Mary was born, but that didn't stop witch hunting even into the 1800s. And through her lifetime, into the start of the 19th century, that act would mainly be used to try to stem this tide of superstition that the authorities saw as going hand in hand with criminal acts and insurrection. So if you will believe in these superstitions and and witchcraft and everything, or purport to be a witch and do this, you know, act in that way upon your fellow humans and take advantage of them in that way, or, you know, harm them in any way by making them think you're a witch. Ooh, I'm putting a spell on you. Oh, no. I wonder how many people were spinning around in their graves in, like, the late 90s, early zeros, when everybody was a witch. I mean... The craft came out, and it was just all over for us. It really was just all over for us. Everybody wanted to be the craft. Yes. Yes. Very much. <laughs> we all did. And even before the craft, we had done, you know, light as a feather, stiff as a board, and, you know, yeah. at, at sleepovers and stuff. Some friends and I had these knotted, we took blue strings and knotted them seven times and had wore those as bracelets for months, and they were supposed to be for some sort of good luck or protection or something. I don't know. I found a book at Walden Books. And then, then that was that. <laughs> yeah, no, I had some of those books. I understand. Yeah. So, like I said, most of those persecuted were older women, the vulnerable population. Some people used superstition and the belief in witches to take advantage of those around them. So just... As you do. As you do. For, for reasons completely unrelated to that statement, let's talk about Mary Bateman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she has nothing to do with any of that. Mm-mm. That was completely unrelated. We can, we'll call that a tangent, in fact. Yes, total tangent, because Mary Bateman is all about chickens. Yep, yep, yep. She loves her some chickens. She was born Mary Harker in North Yorkshire around 1768. Her parents were small farmers. And it was said that they, quote, have always maintained a reputable character. So she comes from good stock, so she should be a good girl. But... But no. No. She starts getting some kind of kleptomaniac tendencies growing up. She has a little bit of the sticky finger. Well, it started even as as young as five. She would hide things from her father's barn... And then later pretend that she found them. And I'm talking like months later. She would hide things for months and be like, I found it. It's mine now. Oh, yeah. She played the long con. Yeah. And this was at age five. I'm she was impressed doing this. by that, honestly. It, it does show some forethought. A lot more forethought than you get from most five-year-olds. No, because like my, my, my six-year-old, even when she was five, she steals my change all the time. And she'll just look right at me and take it. She doesn't really even try to sneak. I can't imagine her ever doing a long con. Mary Bateman, she is not. No. (laughs) That's a good thing. Thank God for that, yeah. She also tended to uh, partake freely of her friend's belongings. You know, what's uh, yours is mine and what's mine is mine. And then she ended up, as many young women of that, you know, of her station would, 
in service. She worked in households as a servant, which is also a really great situation for stealing things. Mm -hmm. That started about age 12. She went to Thursk to work about six miles up the road from her birthplace. And she, the, the book about her extraordinary life and character of Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire witch, said she had a, quote, knavish and vicious disposition. Now, we live in a kind of small town. North Yorkshire was probably even smaller than that at the time. It's really easy to get a bad reputation yeah. in a small town, especially when you're just constantly stealing things from your employers and then losing your job. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't really working out for her as far as being a long-term resident. And finally, she didn't have a single damn reference left in Yorkshire. Everybody knew her reputation. Everybody knew that if she walked into your house to actually perform a service, she would walk out with some of your stuff. Yeah. That was going to happen. So she hit the road to Leeds when she was around 19 in 1787. It's only about 15 miles south of Yorkshire, but it is a bigger town. So she figured, you know, maybe I can kind of fly under the radar a little bit more there. So, because we're going from Yorkshire to Leeds, I have British pubs from both. I swear I'm going to start putting some Britishy music under this just to underscore it. <laughs> I totally expected British pubs. Of course. So, Yorkshire pubs, we have the Fat Badger. Okay. The Disappearing Chin. <laughs> I like that. And what's this? Christie's Bar. Oh! It's spelled like John Christie. Damn it, Christie. Oh, I know, damn it, Christie. In Leeds... We have Toast Bar, Box, that's all capital letters, and Power, Corruption, and Lies. Oh, okay, that's where the politicians are. Probably some lawyers, too. Couple, couple, yeah. Everybody's in a suit and probably looks as though they might have shit their pants a little. Couple stockbrokers, brokers, I can say words, Jesus Christ. So, some Leeds fun facts. One possible source of its name, there's a couple stories about how it got its name, is the Welsh word Lloyd, which Wikipedia says means a place. Oh. <laughs> Way to get creative. Very creative. Google Translate says it means calf. <laughs> I don't know who to trust here. That's like... Google Translate is notorious for being wrong, so... That is true. That is very, very true, yes. Wikipedia is also kind of notorious for being wrong sometimes as well, so really, it's 50-50. I feel like place is probably the more accurate of the two. I mean, people don't always get really creative. Every town has a main street, you know, we use trees to name streets, stuff like that. My, one of my relatives once lived alongside New Street. And I was, I just always thought, did they just say, hey, here's this new street we made. What should we call it? Well, boom, right there, new street. So my my vacation house was just off of Random Way. Oh, yes, I've seen some Random Ways in my time. Yeah, and I, I enjoyed that because Random Way was quite random. <laughs> it did not make sense with the road structure at all. <laughs> so I was like, I get this name. It makes sense because it was very randomly built in here. At least it makes sense. At least it's not a perfectly suitable road that matches every other road. And they're like, let's call this one random. <laughs> I really wish they would get more creative and, like, maybe a little vulgar. Yeah. I think I, I would appreciate that. Like, cocksucker way. All right. <laughs> Just listen to your GPS hear that. Say that. <laughs> I, I would deliberately map myself there all the time. You are 8.5 miles from cocksucker way. 
I would, yeah, I would just have my phone set to that every day. But probably a big part of the reason they don't do that is so they don't have to constantly replace street signs. Yeah, I guess, I guess you we have, have also, a problem with everything, so. Yeah, you would have also stolen. So many. That street sign so every many. time they put it back up. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would still, as, as I, I'm getting older and I would probably take it still. <laughs> yeah, so. I guess that's fair. It has to be boring or people steal it. Yeah, right. Also, Leeds was where Louis Le Prince filmed the very first moving picture scenes in 1888. We covered the Louis Le Prince case way back when. So if you haven't listened to that one, then dig into the archives. I was too lazy to come up with the episode number. (laughs) You can find it, I'm sure. Just listen to them all. You'll come across it. You'll get there. In Leeds, Mary Bateman, at the time Mary Harker still, became a seamstress. She used a family connection to help her find jobs. But, you know, we all need a side hustle. Apparently. Yeah. So she went into the witch business. Oh, look, there is actually a connection to all that stuff about witches. In case you're surprised. <laughs> yeah, I know. We really, we really played that off well. I'm expecting my Academy Award any minute now. People would come to her and, of course, other local ladies who had similar businesses. She wasn't alone in this. If they wanted the usual witchy stuff. You want your fortune told. You want a little love potion if that, you know, boy needs to look your way. Or if somebody else had put an evil wish on your head, then Mary, of course, could remove it. Now she could take away evil spirits for four pieces of gold. Four pieces of gold. And it was said that, quote, she was distinguished in the estimation of lovesick girls and nervous women, viz... Fortune-telling and charms. She could also make you a charm that would probably have some stinky herbs and put it under your pillow and absolutely nothing would happen, much like with my blue string Mm -hmm. (laughs) with the seven knots. After a few years in Leeds, she found a husband, John Bateman. He worked as a wheelwright. It was 1792. She was 24, so practically a dried-up old maid at that age. Uh, as they would think back then, mm-hmm. which explains why they got married after her, a whopping three weeks of courtship. Yep, not enough time to really know a person. Not really. In fact, there's a wonderful quote from the book about her. They strikingly verified the adage that short acquaintance makes long repentance. <laughs> I was like, that is beautiful. And I am going to have to cross-stitch that now. Over the next decade and a half, she had four kids with John, one girl, and three boys. But even after settling down, Mary could not quite walk the straight and narrow. She kept stealing, even from housemates and fellow lodgers when they weren't living on their own. And then when she did have her own place, they would take in lodgers and she would steal from them. The stealing followed her and John around. They just had to keep on moving and moving and moving. It was the same deal as when she was working in service. She did not learn her lesson from that. Well, now she's dragging other people into it. Yeah, there's a story. <laughs> there's a couple stories, actually, that she she does not hesitate to mess with her family members and take advantage of them. She told John that she'd received a letter saying that his father was desperately ill And he needed to go rush to see the old man before he died. That was back in Thirsk. And so he borrows some money to go up there, only to find that his father is absolutely fine. 
probably confused. Very confused. He walks up to his dad. He, he says, I'm, I'm glad to see you're okay. His dad says, I've been okay. <laughs> what are you doing here, son? John comes home pretty pissed off and finds the whole house dismantled. She had sold everything they had to hush up some theft or another, maybe pay somebody back a little bit for something. So including his clothes, she sold his clothing and all of their furniture to repay victims of hers who were threatening her. Yes. And that might not have been the only time that she sold his clothes because there's another accounting of a time when he was off visiting friends and she sold all his clothes. So he very well may have replaced all his clothes and then gone to visit friends and then she sold them all again. Yeah, and he's in a catch-22 because he doesn't want to be around her, but he also doesn't want all of his shit sold again. Yeah, so you kind of have to stay around and watch your shit, but then you also have to be around Mary. And it's really, what is the lesser of these two evils? It's a tough call. Well, he figured out a way. Well, yes, he did. First, I want to talk about her brother. Okay. (laughs) Because I found this story, too. This was even worse, I think, than what she did. To her husband. Her brother deserted his majesty's navy and went to stay with the Batemans. He had a wife, but he couldn't go home because they would look for him there. Mary was not really super happy about having a lodger. She didn't want her brother around. So she tricked his wife into leaving town, once again using the sick father trick. She was like, hey, your dad's sick, better go see him. And then told her brother that his wife was cheating on him. The wife was able to convince Mary's brother that everything was okay, she wasn't cheating, she just received some false information that her father was sick, but they found out that while she had been away, Mary, guess what, plundered all of their clothes. Love to steal some clothes, she did. Do not let this woman walk into a Macy's. No. Ever. And before they could turn her in, because they were gonna, she went and turned him in as a deserter. So he had to go back into the military. But it gets worse. Then she wrote her mother and said, okay, I know that my brother's back in the military, but I have a substitute lined up for him. Everything is totally kosher here. We just send in the substitute. I give him 10 pounds and then brother can come back. So Mary's mother sent her 10 pounds and Mary laughed. And she slipped it into her pocket. She really had no conscience. None whatsoever. Not. I don't even know why her family, because they grew up with her. I don't even know why her family believed any of this. But whatever. It might have been easier for her to do some of this lying at a distance. Because she would have had to mail her mother. Yeah. Send her mother a letter. Might have been easier for her not to be face to face. All the tells that her mother probably knew, not really present in a letter, and she could, you know, maybe throw some some praise in there and butter her up good. Yeah. Well, she apparently had a way with words. She she had a, a way with words, and she was able to make up a good story. For instance, in 1796, a fire killed a lot of people in the town. There was a manufacturing kind of facility. Their fire was there. And then during the fire's progress, a wall fell and killed a bunch of people who were either trying to escape or trying to fight the fire. So Mary goes around to local women and tells them this story. 
A child died in the fire. The child's mother was so broke that she didn't have any linen to lay the child on. So can you lend me some sheets? Can you send me some sheets for this poor child just so that she can be wrapped in something, a shroud? And then Mary immediately pawned them. She did this four times. And also during the disaster, she pretended to be a nurse, collected more linen for the sake of dressing wounds, and then went to the pawn shop. It's, it's chronic. It's a chronic problem with her. She's a horrible person. Yes. Her, as you said, her husband did find a way to try to get away from her. He joined the militia. But she followed him. And a quote here I have is, but he took with him his plague, that is, his wife. The wording in that book was pretty, they, they had it out for Mary, I will say. I can't say that I blame them. No. But it was definitely made it amusing. This was only written a few years after, so it very well could have been written by somebody who knew her. And was like, oh, wait until I put this bitch down on paper. Probably somebody that gave her linen for a non-existent dead child. Exactly. And a lot of the people who had run-ins with her and were tricked by her, you kind of look at them and you say, why? Why why did you believe what you believed? But these stories about, oh, there's, you know, there's been a disaster. That's true. There's yeah. a dead child. That's plausible. There's a lot of poor people. Very well could be that his mother doesn't have any money for a, a shroud. You buy it. Yeah. And especially if she throws some waterworks in there. You know, it's, and it, yeah. These ones, I can definitely see why they believed her. They had no yeah. reason not to. Yeah. So in the late 1700s and early 1800s, she made a few new friends. These were two women who would help her greatly in her supernatural, quote, quote, service. Miss Blythe who used the stars to tell fortune and, of course, did not reside in town. She lived in Scarsborough, 66 miles away, all the way on the coast. This is the Canadian boyfriend of the 1800s. It's like, oh, I, I know a witch. You wouldn't know her, though. She lives in Scarsborough. And not only could she tell fortunes, she, quote, could read the stars and collect from them the knowledge requisite to remove all corporeal, and mental maladies. So we have on our hands access to a legit supernatural healer, folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then there was Mrs. Moore, who kind of, at least in the accounts that I read, fell by the wayside. She pops up as, as somebody Mary talked about, but then she's never really used by Mary that I saw. But she was the seventh child of a seventh child, which apparently gives you special powers. Mm-hmm. And so Mrs. Moore could keep you from harm if somebody was trying to hurt you in any way. You know, they're trying to take your husband. They're trying to get money from you, even if it's maybe money you owe them, stuff like that. Then she would bind you from harm or, as they put it in the book or maybe one of the articles I read, screw you down. That, that sounds differently today. <laughs> yeah, di very different connotations today. We came across that in, in the tiny as well with uh, Undertaker did not mean what it means today. And screw you down <laughs> certainly does not mean the same things. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. But I guess in a way, Mary was really screwing everybody down. She really was. So it, in, in its own way, it was accurate. They just didn't know in, in what way. <laughs> yeah. Mary became the agent for both of these very gifted, very uh, real-life women. 
And, uh, oh, wait, no, they were fictitious. <laughs> she made them up. Completely made these women up out of whole cloth. But people believed her. And they really wanted her help getting access to these incredible services. A client would come, give Mary their name and some money. Then Mary would go to her magical ladies, Miss Blythe and Mrs. Moore. And they would tell the future for this client. Mary would come back to the client, give them their fortune, and sometimes maybe a charm or a word of advice from these vaunted witches as well, and probably managed to wheedle even more money out of them in the process. Mm -hmm. She also expanded her business. She was offering potions and talismans and stuff like that, anything to serve your witchcraft needs, and performed a few abortions on the side. Yeah. So she claimed that she could ward off evil, repel curses, even cure illness, and also give you an abortion, apparently. Then she, having dabbled in medicine with the abortions and probably some health potions, decided to get a little bit more into the healing profession herself. She starts with a family by the name of Kitchen. There's three women in this family. It's, it's a mother and her two, I think, grown daughters, but mm -hmm. there's really not a lot talked about them. And uh, as the, the Lancaster Gazette puts it, and I'm going to insert their italics as well, Mary Bateman was very intimate with this unfortunate family. They like their italics? Apparently. They have a drapery shop in town, and she starts offering her services as a conduit to Miss Blythe. One of these three women developed a mysterious illness while they were all visiting with Mary. Mary's like, oh, hey, I just happen to have these healing powders handy, and those will fix you right up right quick. And uh, the lady died. And then so did the other two. <laughs> and that was the end of the kitchen family. And Mary's excuse was, well, it's definitely the plague, obviously. And everybody else was like, yeah, guess it's the plague. Makes sense. Sure thing. Even though uh, when they looked at the kitchen's house and store, they found them completely empty. Right down to the account books. So, yeah. Now, she, her business really flourished. But Mary, Mary likes to just try new things, I guess. <laughs> she always had new ideas and innovations in how she was going to mess with people and also make money. So she wanted to make a real name for herself in town. No longer flying under the radar, this woman. No, no. Mm -mm. She wants everybody to to be talking about Mary Bateman. And nothing gets people talking like a little apocalyptic prophecy. That'll do it. So she tells everybody that she knows that the world is going to end. How does she know? Because of her eggs. Her chicken had laid eggs that said, Christ is coming. Spelling not being in her wheelhouse super much. So it was C-R-I-S-T. And uh, the book about her called it a very celebrated egg. <laughs> yes, the prophet hen of Leeds. Yes, the prophet hen of Leeds. And I just have to say, there is a picture. And if you look at the episode art, it is probably there. And it is a, a portrait of Mary sitting there and holding out an egg. And all I'm going to say, some people will get it, some people won't. Can I offer you a nice egg in this trying time? That's just all that went through my head every time I saw that picture while doing research. And it's still in my head now. 
and I can't get rid of it. If you know, you know. And also, also, okay, I have in all caps in my notes, is this an early 19th century pun from this book? Because in the book, it stated, persons, however, flocked from all quarters to see the wonderful egg. <laughs> I'm like, yay! I think, yeah, I actually have the same thing. I have people flock to Mary, and I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> we're doing this, apparently. Apparently we're doing Everybody this. Everybody was taking that, that low-hanging fruit. Yes, they were. I can't begrudge them. I basically spend my entire life just hanging out under the tree, just <laughs> waiting for the low-hanging fruit to drop in my mouth. I won't even take the effort to reach up for it. Come on. <laughs> So, of course, people are freaking out that the world is ending. But, of course, Mary can save them from that. Uh, for the bargain rate of one penny, she'll let them see the egg. And somehow that saves them, I guess. Or maybe there's some other service in there. I don't know. No, they just they paid for the privilege to see the prophecy eggs. I, I don't know. That's what they were paying for. It was like a sideshow. It feels like there was also some element of, well, if I see it, maybe it won't affect me or something. I don't even know. Honestly. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there was some gimmick to yeah. it. Yeah. And I think, I don't feel like my currency conversion is super accurate with one penny from the 1800s early in England, but I think it's about a buck 46 today. So she's not actually really super overcharging. I mean, it's still a hoax and it's still yeah. fake and you're still fooling people. Yeah, I have a penny wasn't enough to go on, and a hen can only produce so many eggs. People flocked to Mary for magical protection. For the price of a penny, she promised that they would be spared from the forthcoming end times. Okay, all right. So all right. she did promise that they would be spared if they viewed the eggs. There you go. So for the bargain basement price of one penny, you get to see a fun egg and also be saved from the coming apocalypse. Not bad. Not bad. No rapture for you. Right. Her method was figured out by a local doctor who did a little bit of surveillance on her and found out that she was taking the fresh eggs and then using vinegar to etch the prophecy onto them and then sort of um, returning them to the hen. If you, you know, just she was just stuffing them right back up the hen. Yep. So then the hen would freshly lay them. With a prophecy. Yes, exactly. I do want to try this vinegar etching on eggs, but I promise I won't shove any eggs back up my ducks. And they're not even laying anyhow, so I couldn't. It would, it would yeah. be brand new eggs <laughs> for the ducks well, if I and, did. And it does work. And think about Easter eggs. You always use vinegar for Easter eggs because that's what helps to dye them. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done Easter eggs in a really long time, obviously. So there's still no consequences. Even after this is found out, still no consequences for Mary. That's all going on kind of around the same time that the Perigos come into Mary's life in 1806. It's springtime in England and over in the town of Bramley, which is about five to six miles west of Leeds, there's a woman who is going through some, some rough times. She's going through some shit. That is Rebecca Perigo, and she had not been feeling very well. She and her husband William thought that the weird fluttering in her side was maybe part of a nervous disorder, which of course would have come about when somebody cursed her. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously medicine and how it works. They both were in their mid-40s, had been married 20 years. 
Rebecca hears about Mary's abilities and her connections to these spiritual, supernatural ladies. So she goes to consult with Mary, and Mary says, Sure, I'll talk to my good buddy, Miss Blythe, and I'll help you out. Miss Blythe tells Rebecca, well, she tells Mary, who tells Rebecca, of course. I got the instructions. Here's what's up. I need you to send me four guinea notes wrapped up in your flannel petticoat, and then I'll send you a silk purse. You need to sew that to the bed, and then don't open it either for 18 months or ever at all. Sources very wildly on that. And some fun with currency here. The guinea note wouldn't be replaced by pounds for another 10 years in what was called the Great Recoinage of 1816. The Great Recoinage. The Great Recoinage. I love, I love really epic names like that for just, you know, we're going to start using this coin instead of that coin. Yes, it is an arduous process, so I can understand why somebody wanted to make it sound very important, but it's it's not a war. It's not a, you know, a, a, a vaunted national author. It's using different coins. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this whole deal with the silk purse and the bed and everything, that's not all. Because Miss Blythe has taken on this case and it is a tough one. And Mary is working for her. And as this work is going on, she needs to keep getting paid for the work as well as for expenses related to the case. And of course... You need stuff like silver and china and a new bed. And so those were among the things that the Perigos gave her over that time period. Actually, I have a list between December 1806 and April 1807. So this is just five months. She requests and is given the following. One goose, two pairs of men's shoes, a goose pie, a tea caddy, several shirts, a counterpane, a piece of woolen cloth, a silk handkerchief, a silk shawl, a light colored gown skirt, a light colored cotton gown, two pillow slips, a new waistcoat, 60 pounds of butter? What the hell is she doing with all that butter? Seven strokes of meat? No, meal. Well, I liked it better when it was meat. Six strokes of malt. I feel like this is that episode of Family Guy where like... A pallet. Peter just doesn't understand these weird units of measurement. I need a hammock full of jam. (laughs) A quantity of tea and sugar. Two or three hundred eggs. She was baking... That poor chicken. She was baking the world's biggest cake, Amber. Obviously, she was trying to get in the Guinness book. I'm just just imagining she's using those eggs to harass that poor chicken. Yeah, she's probably out there shoving them right back up the chicken. A pair of worsted stockings, a pair of new shoes, a pair of black silk stockings, three yards of Nairsbro linen cloth, two stones of malt, a piece of beef, three bottles of spirits, two tablecloths, two barrels, and two napkins. It's it's quite the list. You also, uh, a pair of pinchers. Oh, interesting. This was at the beginning, but the Perigos were instructed that they needed to hammer in two pieces of iron in the form of horseshoes to their door, but the nails could not be driven in with a hammer, but with the back of a pair of pinchers. So I'm thinking like pliers or something. Sure. And that then the pinchers were to be sent to Miss Blythe for 18 months at least. 
<laughs> she just needed some freaking pliers. Yeah. That's, that's all it was. She was like, I need some pliers, but I need a really convoluted method of getting them. So I'll just tell them to do something with the pliers. And then obviously I need the pliers sent to me for magical purposes. But just go go to the hardware store, Mary. When you were reading that list, it's like a department store. She's like, you know what? I have to wear a light colored dress to this wedding. Oh, I need that for magical purposes. I need you to put it on, spin around twice, and then send it to me. Exactly, yes. It, it, I, I pretty much have that same thing, is that she basically treated them as personal shoppers. <laughs> you know, she did. Not actually paying them any money for the things that they were giving her. Oh, I also have six to eight pounds of cheese. Well, I, we can't blame her at all for that, can we? Yes, yes. I'm, so she would randomly just, like, send them letters being like, I need an eight-pound wheel of cheese, burn this letter, thanks. Oh, yes, the burning was in there, too. She, they were to burn all of their correspondence, which would keep the evil spirits from learning about their plans and meddling in them, and also is a way of getting rid of the evidence. Yeah, like one of the letters, my dear friends. I will be obliged to you if you will let me have a half a dozen of your china, three silver spoons, half a pound of tea, two pounds of loaf sugar, and a tea canister to put the tea in, or else it will not do. I durst not drink out of my own china. You must burn this with a candle. She's writing a grocery list. Mm-hmm. She's writing a grocery list and then making up an excuse that also makes it sound very dramatic and dangerous. Somebody might be trying to poison her tea. Oh my, the projection. It's amazing. <laughs> so I actually, I found this, a list of these letters on... Which they apparently didn't burn. I guess not, because I mean, it's all in quotations. My dear friends, I will be obliged to you if you will buy me a camp bedstead, bed and bedding, a blanket, a pair of sheets, and a long bolster. Must come from your house. You need not buy the best feathers. Common ones will do. I have laid on the floor for three nights, and I cannot lay on my own bed owing to the planets being so bad concerning your wife. And I must have one of your buying, or it will not do. You must bring down the china, the sugar, the caddy, the three silver spoons, and the tea at the same time when you buy the bed, and pack them all up together. My brother's boat will be up in a day or two, and I will order my brother's boatman to call for them all at Mary Bateman's. And you must give Mary Bateman one shilling for the boatman, and I will place it to your account. Your wife must burn this as soon as it is read, or it will not do. Like, it's outstanding. Like, you must do this, or it will not do. The It will not do really pops up there a lot. And she's really, she's putting her foot down and making sure that they know that they have to do this. And there's kind of a very subtle or else. It's unspoken, but it's there. Well, the next letter she wrote had a big or else. My dear friends, I am sorry to tell you, you will take an illness in the month of May next, one or both of you, but I think both. But the works of God must have its course. You will escape the chambers of the grave, though you seem to be dead, yet you will live. Your wife must take a half a pound of honey down from Bramley to Mary Bateman's at Leeds, and it must remain there till you go down yourself, and she will put it in such like stuff that I have sent from Scarborough to her, and she will put it in when you come down and see her yourself, or it will not do. You must eat pudding for six days. But you must put in such like stuff that I have sent to Mary Bateman. It's very repetitive. And uh, she'll she'll give it to your wife. You must not eat this. 
You must not begin to eat of this pudding while I let you know. If ever you find yourself sickly at any time, you must take each of you a a teaspoonful of this honey. I will remit 20 pounds to you on the 20th day of May, and it will pay a little of what you owe. You must bring this down to Mary Bateman's and burn it at her house when you come next time. Ooh, I think it's very telling that Mary Bateman needs to see them burning the letter with her own eyes to make sure they're doing it. This is a, a much more important letter to burn for some reason. Yeah, and, and this one actually was pretty much saying that they must use the honey and the puddings in a precise manner mentioned or they would all be killed. Then there was another letter about this, about how they had to eat the pudding on the 11th of May, and you must put one of the powders in every day as they are marked for six days, and you must see it put in yourself every day or else it will not do. This is like her favorite saying, else it will not do. Yeah, right? If you find yourself sickly at any time, you must not have no doctor. Oh, I hate that. For it will not do. Oh, my God. It's it's this week's enema. Drink when we say it will not do. <laughs> and you must not let the boy that used to eat with you eat any of that pudding for six days. Interesting. And you must make only just as much as you can eat yourselves. If there is any left, it will not do. Drink. You must keep the door fast as much as possible or you will be overcome by some enemy. Now think on and take my directions, or else it will kill us all. Oh, so close. (laughs) About the 25th of May, I will come to Leeds and send for your wife to marry Bateman's. Your wife will take me by the hand and say, God bless you that I ever found you out. It has pleased God to send me into the world that I might destroy the works of darkness. (laughs) I call them the works of darkness because they are dark to you. Now mind what I say, whatever you do, this letter must be burned in straw on the hearth by your wife. Very specific. Else it will not do. Else it will not do. I'm really feeling like the ways to burn them is like a game of Clue now, though. Burned in straw on the hearth by your wife. (laughs) In the study with the candlestick. Hey, that works. (laughs) By Professor Plum. Yeah, it's really, it's turning into Clue. She's just rolling dice to be like, okay, where we have to burn it, who has to burn it, and where's the fire coming (laughs) from? And yeah, else it will not do is starting to sound like uh, a mother telling her children, because I said so. Else it will not do. Else it will not do. So yeah, essentially, she comes up with this whole, you're going to die, you're going to die thing, but Miss Blythe can save you, and here's the thing you need to do. There's some pudding, there's some honey, and you notice that she's so cheap. That they have to bring the honey, too. Yeah. They have to bring the honey, too. She can't even prepare the magical honey herself. No, it has to be their honey, of course, mm-hmm. else it will not do. There's a lot in there, in that letter. It's, it's a big steaming pile of repetition and proof. Because there's also the fact that if they get sick from this, they are not to tell a doctor. Because there's also this idea that if they get any medical intervention, that would only make them sicker. Yep, doctors will kill you. (laughs) So they do eat the pudding and the honey, and they get incredibly sick, of course. Now, from William, we have that his mouth had a violent heat come out of it, which I think is puking. That sounds like vomiting. It does. 
It does. When I read that, I was thinking of bile and stomach acid because that burns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that's kind of what what my take on it was, was it was like the violent stomach acid coming up. Yeah, I'm definitely going to refer to vomiting as a violent heat coming from my mouth from now on. And also, for more proof of that, he also reported a violent complaint in his bowels. So I think there's some relation there. And I think we can figure out what that is. And there was a soreness in his mouth, black lips, and the worst headache of his life. Interestingly, this is a a new one for me, his vision turned green. Which is weird. I did a little looking around. And this is, of course, speculation, and it doesn't come up later. I don't even know if they had tests for it. But digoxin poisoning, which uh, digoxin would uh, later be digitalis, is is derived from the, I think, plant digoxin. (laughs) I, I really only, like stepped into these shallow waters and I didn't stride very far from the shore here. But it does cause visual disturbances, blurred or yellow vision. Some people might see yellow as green. And in addition, it causes nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, headache, dizziness, confusion, delirium. So all that stuff together really seems to imply that maybe there might have been another ingredient other than the ones we're going to talk about later in addition, I was talking to a sibling who's in the medical field about this, and this sibling reported that at one time they were tasked with giving a patient digitalis through an IV, and I guess there's different rates at which you push things through the IV that varies depending on the medication and your needs, and she said, how fast should I push this? And the person who told her to do it said, slowly. Because if you do it too fast, it can blind them. Wow. Mm-hmm. So William is feeling like shit and stops eating the pudding and honey after two or three servings. He survived. Uh, even a few years later, it would be said, quote, he by no means recovered. So who knows? He may have even lost some of his vision. It was not specified. But, and yeah, I'm super, super rampant speculation in there, but I'm just saying it seems possible. A cat and a chicken, or maybe several, also had some of the pudding and or honey, and they died after consuming it. And what do you know, just as Miss Blythe predicted, Rebecca died on May 24th, 1807. Some of her last words being a request to her husband to not be rash with Mary Bateman, but to await the next appointed time. Interesting. Don't be rash as in maybe don't be upset with her. Just yeah. wait and see what she says, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Not, not great advice, but there was some delirium and confusion in those symptoms too, so we can't really blame her at all for that. He's now a widow Er. and he needs help, help that only Miss Blythe can give him, so he keeps up his now solo contributions to her little 1800s GoFundMe. Yes, and he received another letter in the beginning of June from Miss Blythe. My dear friend, I am sorry to tell you that your wife should touch of those things when I ordered her not, and for that reason it has caused her death. It had likened to have killed me at Scarborough and Mary Bateman at Leeds, and you and all, and for this reason, she will rise from the grave. 
She will stroke your face with her right hand, and you will lose the use of one side. But I pray for you. I would not have you go to no doctor, for it it will not do. It will not do. Drink. Drink. I would have you to eat and drink what you like, and you will be better. Now, my dear friend, take my directions. Do, and it will be better for you. Pray God bless you. Amen. Amen. You must burn this letter immediately after it is read. Then she proceeded to ask him to send the large Bible, so probably a family Bible, potentially, and then just over the time that passed, pretty much every article of his wife's clothing and all the money he could spare or borrow. Oh, and Kohl's. And, well, she need, she's cold. She needs a fire. Yeah. I mean, come on. Would you begrudge Miss Blythe her fire? Apparently not. Else it will not do. <laughs> it does take him some time, but he starts to realize that despite his very generous funding of Miss Blythe's lifestyle, his own life ain't getting much better. Nope. In fact, it's getting much worse. He is deep in debt from giving her all of his money and has pretty much not a cent to his name. So, for one reason or the other, either to prove whether or not she's legit, or because he's broke, he, in November 1808, dips into the silk bags that it was said were never to be touched, and there are no guineas in there, just basically some trash, a little bit of, a little bit of garbage, essentially. I, I heard one account that it was cabbage leaves, I heard another account that it was what I think to be toilet paper. <laughs> Literal garbage. Yeah. Blew my mind. How did they, how did they. I think there were some nails in there. Paper. Waste paper. I think there were maybe some nails in there. Yeah. Waste paper, metal, and um, some bad shillings. Bad farthings. I'm sorry. Bad farthings. Bad farthings. We have bad tithings from bad farthings. He tells his neighbors first, and we have this from the Hull Packet, which is a newspaper. Although they could not but be indignant at his credulity, they pitied his misfortunes. So they were like, dude, why did you believe all this shit that she was telling you? I mean, we feel bad for you, but also why? When the cat ate the pudding, was that not a giveaway? Was that, was that not a red flag for you? Really? really. <laughs> they say, you need to go tell Mary. Talk to her and also talk to the constable. Some talking needs to happen. Now, a little interlude here. Another incident that was going on around the same time with James Snowden and his family. They were neighbors of her. This from the Hull Packet again. This artful woman learnt that Snowden's wife had a sort of presentiment that one of her children would be drowned and offered her services to avert so heavy a calamity. The agency of Miss Blythe was called in here again. Mary pretended to write to her at Thirsk and received a letter directing that James Snowden's silver watch should be sewed up in the bed by Mary Bateman. Next, money to the amount of 12 guineas was demanded. That was also sewn into a bag and attached to the bed, they were never to open these charms or else they'd lose their power. This is all very familiar. And as time went on, she told them they needed to take it a step further to save their children. Mary, you know, speaking from Miss Blythe. 
and that they should move to the neighborhood of Bradford in Bowling, which is about 12 miles west of Leeds, take the bed, the watch, and the money, but leave everything else at home, and leave the key with Mary. Hmm. We've seen all of this before. Mm-hmm. So the next development is that they say, hey, uh, we really want to open the bags and get out the watch and the money. And Mary's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that yet. I'll take a look and tell you if it's time yet. But first, you need to take a, a dose of this preparation that Miss Blythe had me make up for you. And gives them a schedule for when that's to happen. And it's like, do this next week. And then the timing works out very fortuitously for them. So back to William, Perico. He's out for truth and justice. And he goes to Mary like, hey, uh, what's up? Why was there trash, cabbage and waste paper and metal in the bags? And she says, well, obviously you opened it too soon. I mean, and that turned all of your money into garbage. He's like, bitch, I think I opened it too late. And that's literally almost exactly. I added the bitch. (laughs) That's literally almost exactly what he said. So he's really wising up, finally. And I do like, I I love that response. I loved it. He grabs the constable, comes by Mary's the next day. But of course, Mary has her own plan. She says that William had poisoned her and John. And John was sick in bed. But oddly enough, despite the fact that she was also poisoned, she's standing there and seems just fine, right as rain. The constable arrests her, despite all of her claims. Then they searched the house, and they found all of the shit that William had given her to pass on to Miss Blythe. Because you can't pass things on to someone who doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Charges are brought. There's a deposition of William, which is described in the paper... Mary Bateman of Leeds had, under pretense of affording relief to his wife, who was subject to a nervous disorder, extorted at various times different sums of money to the amount of 70 pounds. And that's actually in italics in the (laughs) newspaper. Wow. That's about $7,430 today. Decent chunk of change. Mm Mm-hmm. Mary is at the House of Correction. It was hard to tell... William did get some money back, but they wrote, William got back 12 exclamation point. I'm wondering if maybe somebody just hit the, used the wrong typesetting figure and it was supposed to be 12 pounds. Could maybe. be. And they, they that, put, that would make more sense than 12. 12. He received back 12 exclamation point. The Snowden family, back to them, they were soon to take this preparation that Mary had made up for them on Miss Blythe's instructions. They were supposed to take it in late October, but first, James Snowden went to the pub in Bradford. Did he go to the Sparrow? Did he go to the Hitching Post? Did he go to Rum Shackalack? I hope he went to Rum Shackalack. Did he go to the Boar and Fable? Did he go to Plonks? <laughs> or did he go to our favorite on this show, Rabbit Hole? We always go down to rabbit holes. I was so delighted when I found that. And yes, I managed to incorporate British pubs in for technically a third time. (laughs) So a friend at the pub was reading aloud the article, which was called Witchcraft Murder Credulity in the Leeds Mercury. And Snowden hears this shit. And he's like, okay, we're opening the bags. He goes home, opens them up. 
And it looks like someone's been bad this year because he got coal in his stocking. Probably the coal that she asked the Perigos for. Probably. <laughs> she's she's kind of double dealing in her. She's like, well, I need some coal to put in these bags for the Snowdens. I'll just get William Perigo to give me some coal. Wow. It is physically impossible for her to just go to the store. <laughs> yeah, won't do it. Then he goes back to his house and finds that, of course, Mary had plundered it. So he gets the police to check out Mary and John's house, and sure enough, there's a bunch of his shit. So then John Bateman is taken to York Castle and also put under arrest. He does end up acquitted, and the book later says, more on account of his good fortune than his good conduct. But the book is a little uneven on John. In that quote, it seems like the book is blaming him. It's saying, John's a bad person, and he was only lucky to get off. But then it pities him again very soon after that, and of course slides in a little bit of sexism for good measure. Women, as they are naturally much more amiable, tender, and compassionate than the other sex. I'm sorry, I should read this as it's written. I'll start over there. Women, as they are naturally much more amiable, tender, and compassionate than the other sex. I hate that word. Become, when they pervert the dictates of nature, more remorseless and cruel, and can conceive and execute the most diabolical of crimes. I hate it when they use the Fs instead of the Ss. I know, and it's... I, I know there must be a rule, but I can't figure it out because it's not everywhere. It's just some of them. And it's not only the first Ss. Sometimes it's moft. It's, it's annoying. But, so yeah, they, they blame John, and then they go back to blaming Mary, which... Let's honestly, yeah, they're throwing in some some general sexism by blaming women as a whole, but also the, Mary is very much at fault here. Yeah, no, th this is totally Mary, and yeah. John was probably like, could you stop? I mean, they dated for three weeks. Yeah. I have a duty that I have to stay married to you, but stop doing this. I mean, long repentance was the quote. Short acquaintance makes long repentance, and it is really bearing itself out here. Another story comes out in the process of leading up to the trial of Mary about Judith Cryer. Judith is a poor widowed woman who does laundry, which I think is what they mean when they say getting up linen. And her 11-year-old grandson had given her some trouble. She was worried about his future, so Mary Bateman was recommended to her. And again, Mary is contacting her good buddy, Miss Blythe, to see what Judith should do about her grandson. The whole packet tells us, In a few days, an answer was received from this lady, which shocked poor Judith beyond description. The letter contained a representation of a gallows, with its usual appendage, a rope, accompanied by the horrid denunciation that the grandson would be executed on the gallows before he attained 14 years of age, and that his fate could only be averted by four guineas being raised by the old woman and appropriated as Miss Blythe should afterward direct. And Judith is like, I, 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 I just do laundry. I can't come up with four guineas. And Mary's all, well, um, guess your grandson's going to swing in a couple years. Have fun at the hanging, you know? So Judith does a little begging and borrowing. She dips into her rent money and she comes up with the four guineas. And of course, there's a usual sew it to the bed little trick. And once she hears about Mary's arrest, she looks into the bags 
and finds a bunch of trash. <laughs> I mean, yep. so speaking of repetitive, she's repetitive in both her actions and methods and her writing. Which is the worst crime, I ask you? I mean, I want it to be the writing. <laughs> really, the writer. I know you want it to be. Yeah, the writer in me really wants it to be the writing. The whole packet article ends. In manners, Mary Bateman is very plausible, of an appearance sedate and respectable, and, as Shakespeare says of Richard, with a tongue in her head that would wheedle the devil. Poetry and Shakespeare all in one episode. It is the pinnacle of my career. <laughs> and the uh, opposite of the pinnacle of Amherst. <laughs> Tolerance of my literary leanings. Amherst, <laughs> like, we're at a low point here. No, I actually did have that in my notes from that same article, Sedate and Responsible, having a tongue in her head that would wheedle the devil. I did have that in my notes. <laughs> okay, so at least you at least you know I'm not just pulling this stuff out of nowhere and making an excuse to read Shakespeare and poetry on the air. But you're totally using it as an excuse to read Shakespeare on the air. It's in the sources. I know, I know. <laughs> so as more and more comes out, people start talking and the deaths of the kitchens are brought up as a possible murder that Mary might have committed, although we don't really get any serious resolution on that. They also question a woman named Winifred Bond. She's said to be an agent of Mary's who sent letters for her, which is not illegal, and also bought poison for her, which um, might, might swing to the other side. Quote, and to transact other concerns in furtherance of the ends of her fraudulent and diabolical purposes. I just love when the word diabolical gets bandied about. It's my favorite. It was determined that she would be a material witness when the dark business comes to be judicially investigated. The dark business. The dark business. They're going to give Mary the dark business, all right. After the arrest in October 1808, she's in jail until the murder trial starts at York Castle in March of the following year, and they're charging her just for the death of Rebecca, the murder. As usual, people come to watch, and it is something. The court was extremely crowded at a very early hour, and it was with the greatest difficulty that the judge could enter the room. When they say the greatest difficulty, it took him 15 minutes to get from the door to the judge's bench. One man was severely hurt in the crowd and several ladies fainted. Oh, I'm sorry. One man was severely hurt in the crowd. Severely. Severely. I'm severely upset with all these Fs. She has no lawyer, but she has a foolproof defense strategy. Blanket denial. Yep. No, nope. Didn't do any of this. Don't know what you're talking about. Poison. I would never. That wasn't me. That was the gods. <laughs> Else it will not do. There are tests of a bottle of Mary's in which they found arsenic. And they tested the honey that she had given the Perigos, which William Perigo still had, and found mercury chloride. Now, mercury chloride, too much of that can give you ulcers of the stomach, throat, and mouth. And if it accumulates too much in the kidneys, that can end in acute kidney failure. Yeah, and uh, high amounts actually can cause extensive tissue damage as well. That's not great. Like maybe perhaps some black lips, I was thinking. Mm hmm, interesting point, yes. And large amounts can kill in just 24 hours. There can also be some uh, vomiting of blood, maybe a violent heat. Violent heat. Corrosive bronchitis, 
gastrointestinal tract irritation, which also will cause a violent heat. Out the other end? Yeah, out both ends. As for the arsenic, now, okay, they just tested the bottle. I do have to point out, just because I know from Detectives by the Decade, that they did at that point, not these particular investigators, but out there in the wider world, there was a test to detect it after it had been absorbed in the body. But this was very, very new. It had only been created in 1806. And we're in 1808 now, and it hadn't actually been used in any court case uh, and wouldn't be until the trial of Anna Zwanziger in Germany. So in Leeds, with how slow information passed, they probably didn't even know about this test. But they did test the bottle, and the tests they had for that were decently reliable. Yeah. And Winifred does admit to having purchased arsenic and mercury chloride for Mary. So, and they uh, actually have a little handwriting examination go on here. And what do you know, Mary and Miss Blythe's handwritings match. The trial lasts 12 hours. And then the jury gets all the evidence they need. And uh, do you know the deliberation time? Um, let me see. No, I do not. I'll give you this. The jury without retiring, found the prisoner guilty. Wow. Zero minutes. It's a new record. I feel like there should be some celebratory music, maybe some, like, little horns blowing. Well, and you know what? I do have in my notes that it was uh, a swift verdict. There was, the judge said, not a particle of doubt on the matter and declared to Mary, for crimes like yours in this world, the gates of mercy are closed. Yes, yes. He came down on her hard. He said, you entered into a long and premeditated system of fraud which you carried on for a length of time, which is most astonishing, and by means one would have supposed could not, in this age and nation, have been practiced with success. Well, Judge, one would be wrong. And then he said, The law, while it dooms you to death, has, in its mercy, afforded you time for repentance and the assistance of pious and devout men whose admonitions and prayers and counsels may prepare you for another world where even your crimes, if sincerely repented of, may find mercy. They said that he gave her the death sentence in a most impressive manner. She was to be hanged by the neck until dead, and then the body would go off to the surgeon for dissection and anatomy stuff. And that was really, there was a reason that was only convicted murderers at at that time whose bodies were used for anatomical study, because it really freaked people out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The idea of dissection, that was considered unholy, it was considered against God. And so that really... Thank you, religion, for stopping a lot of medical progress that could have happened a lot earlier. Right. <laughs> right? She, uh, she pulls the old trick. I'm pregnant. I'm knocked up. And she says she's 22 weeks, which would, I did the counting, put the conception in late October, right around the time of her arrest. So at least she's smart enough to not be like, I'm eight weeks pregnant. It must have... Been that lady over there? Yeah. (laughs) But they have 12 matrons examine her in a closed room and find she is, quote, not with quick child. Now, how uncomfortable would that be that you have 12 women 
Just being like, no, not pregnant. We all touched her just to make sure. That is a really awkward examination, in my opinion. I'm hoping it's one woman does the actual examination and the other 11 are just for witnessing purposes. I'm I don't hoping. Know. Twelve women going all up in there to make sure you're not pregnant in whatever way they did? I don't like it. I, I need to take a Xanax just to go for my yearly, you know? Yeah. No, imagine your yearly times 12. No, thank you. Not at all. She still insisted after all this that she was innocent of the murder. She did say she was guilty of fraud, but she said, I didn't kill anyone. This is pretty sad. Her youngest was still breastfeeding at the time. And so had been in jail with her while she was in prison for those several months. And so she, she gave him his last breastfeeding. And uh, her husband, William, had not visited her at all. And, quote, this circumstance seemed to affect her considerably. She did write him a letter the day before the execution. She put in her wedding ring into the envelope and requested that it be given to their daughter, Quote, in this letter, she lamented the disgrace she had brought upon her husband and her family, but declared her entire innocence of the crime for which she was about to suffer, although she acknowledged that she had been guilty of many frauds. She did love fraud. She actually was still committing it in prison. Mm-hmm. She tried to commit fraud on another prisoner at the jail. Uh, there was a young female prisoner who wanted her sweetheart to come visit. So Mary, of course, for a little charge, made a little charm. And yeah, that, that she was made to pay that woman back. <laughs> it was, they were not having it. The trial was on Friday, and they executed her on the following Monday. She was said to seem unmoved, and when they asked her if she had any confession, she refused to make any. Of course, there's a big crowd, but they actually seem pretty sympathetic. It's not the usual, we've been drinking all night and everything is funny. So we have this from the trial of Mary Bateman. There's a lot of Fs in this one. I'm just going to read it normal. Please. The appearance of the prisoner upon the platform created a visible emotion among the spectators. Spectators. An emotion not of brutal insult, as once in the metropolis disgraced by the British character but of awe and deep commiseration, which reflections on the enormity of her guilt only rendered more poignant. The most respectful silence prevailed during the few moments spent in prayers, except when interrupted by a half-suppressed ejaculation for mercy on the wretched sufferer. <laughs> sufferer. <laughs> the moment when the executioner was preparing to finish this awful scene the ordinary again addressed the culprit in a low tone of voice, inquiring if she had any communication to make. She replied that she had not. She was innocent. The next moment terminated her existence as to this world and sent her to another and much more awful tribunal. There were a lot of Fs in there that I skipped over. Oh, like a lot. The most respectful. <laughs> I'm going to spit all over the microphone. <laughs> Even the hearse taking her remains to Leeds was met by a big crowd. The general infirmary took in her body, and then it seems like they might have charged people to see the body. Three pence per view. Raising altogether 30 pounds. So that's a lot of viewings. Uh, her husband, John, had to sell all the furniture with an extreme debt, and it seemed... 
the wording can be kind of hard to ferret out exactly what happened, but it seemed like he might have sent the kids off to relatives, not having the money to raise them. By a week after her death, there's an announcement in the paper that a book will be published about her within the week called The Life of Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire Witch, including an account of the arts she practiced and correct copies of letters she wrote to carry on her thefts, deceptions, and murders. And so this uh, was, was what I took from that article that I felt really summed it all up. Of all the wonderful characters that ever came before the public, Mary Bateman stands out amongst the first for ingenuity, artifice, and cruelty. By her ingenuity, she contrived to get vast numbers of credulous people into her snares. By her artifices, to rob and reduce them to beggary. And by her cruelty, to administer to them the deadly cup of poison. That is what I have on Mary Bateman. Hold on. Yes. Okay. What you got? Let's talk about Mary's body. Okay. So thousands of people attended her dissection. And afterward, those who wished to could purchase a dried and preserved patch of her skin as a souvenir. Ew. Her skin was even used to bind several books. Wow. At least one of which was allegedly owned by the future George IV. Oh, that's really interesting. I just listened to a podcast about him today. And her skeleton is now in storage at Leeds University. It was on display for over two centuries. First at the Leeds Medical School, and then later at the Thackeray Medical Museum, where it served as a reminder of one of the most cunning murderers that the area has ever known. Wow, I didn't know all that. Good stuff. They sold her skin. That is, that is, whoa. I bet they told Mm. him to sew it to their beds. Ah, Sew it to your bed. I just can't imagine having somebody's skin and wanting somebody's skin. That's that's horrifying. And then what do you do with it if you don't sew it to your bed? Do you frame it? Do you put it up on the fridge with a magnet? You bind books. Well, I mean, if they're just selling patches of the skin kind of as a souvenir, like you can't bind a book with just the patch. It seems like they did both. They gave away souvenirs of her skin, and then they also used, because you would need a larger swaths yeah you need a book. strip of skin at least to bind the book yeah depending on the size of the book obviously you know if it's a trade paperback you don't need as much but if, if, if we're going hardback then we're gonna need some ass i thought that was buying. that was quite apropos for how she used people for her body to be used in such a way it's still horrifying apropos it can be both. It can be both. <laughs> Apropos things can also be horrifying things. <laughs> and I just wonder, you have to wonder, if somewhere in some trunk in somebody's attic, there's a little strip of withered oh, I bet there is. skin that's been passed down through the centuries and through the generations. And that's a family heirloom. <laughs> but you know what? Like some of it probably has been thrown away over the years too. Like One would hope. Because I, if you found that in like a grandparent's trunk, you'd be like, what? Is this like an old pork rind? What is this? <laughs> Why are they keeping this wrapped up in cloth? I don't understand. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of that probably was like, I don't know what this is, and I'm throwing it out. Why does it say skin of witch on it? Witch skin. <laughs> witch skin. What the hell is that? <laughs> Grandpa displayed it every Halloween. <laughs> All right. So that was Mary Bateman. 
And of course we have our Patreon you can come to for more stories of old-timey crimey. We've really been having a lot of fun there. When I pick the case, when we, we take turns picking cases. And when I pick the case for the week, it's weird because that's the one we spend the bulk of our time researching. And because they're bigger. You know, our, our tinies tend to be about half an hour long. And these tend to be an hour. We're creeping up on an hour and a half right now. And so it's so weird how because I'm presenting it to you and I want those little surprises for you, I go about that differently. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so much pickier with those cases. These cases, yes, I'm picky. I have a, a, a list of seven that I've called from our list of 220-some that I have on a post-it note on my desk, and I'm going to go through those. <laughs> so I'm yeah. still picky with these no, cases. No, I do, too, because I try to get really obscure things because you listen to a lot of podcasts, and, and you do a ton of research on your own outside of the podcast. So I always try to find something that I've never heard of in hopes that you have also never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting how we, we find those cases and we just really have so much fun presenting them to each other. And I'm pretty sure I'm on a no-fly list based on my Google search history. Do you know how many poisons I researched last week? Do you know that those... The, oh, I mean, and I, that's that's not the first time. that I did detect, Detectives by the Decade for two seasons. There was a lot of poisoning in yes. there. I also said the word diarrhea like a lot. Better than animals, I suppose. Yeah, right? So yeah, you can do that. You also get a shout out on the show. In addition to all that wonderful content that you can binge and enjoy. And if you don't want to do that, if you're not the long-term relationship type, you can leave a buck on the nightstand and then head out for your walk of shame using the email address oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com over on PayPal. I'm thinking about setting us up one of those coffee, coffee, coffee things. Or you can also donate money there, but I don't know. If you have any comments about that, you can leave that on our social media. I was really hoping that that meant that people could just buy me coffee. I mean, because I'm totally on board with that. Technically, it's kind of like buy me a coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I. And it's, just, oh. it's another donation portal but for small amounts of donations. I would prefer to just like randomly have magical coffee appear in front of me. That would be awesome. I think that the possibility of that exists just as much as the possibility of Miss Blythe reading the stars exists in order to don't, solve corporeal and mental maladies. Don't crush my dreams. Don't do it. Else it will not do. Else it will not do. Else it will not do. So yeah, you can come over to our social media, putting up lots of content related to the show. And I've kind of started front-loading the, the pictures and stuff, the media that's related to the show more toward closer to the release of the episode. So we're on Facebook my brain just broke for a second. Twitter, Twitter. Instagram. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I started to say like PayPal and no, it just it was not working. We are on those three places and you can come and see us there and just say hi even. Just, just you know, give us a little pop up and say, how you doing? We, we enjoy that. We enjoy hearing from our listeners all the time. Yep. We like you. Talk we to do. us. You are our people. I mean, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're our people. So... Oh, don't forget to listen to Short Story Short Podcast uh, with Chris Garcia and myself, where we talk about short stories. Link is in the show notes. We have merch on Redbubble. We have an Amazon wish list. All those links are in the show notes. So there's a myriad of ways you can support us, but you're already supporting us even by listening. If you just want to go that extra mile, that is also appreciated, though. So uh, if I have any more bullshit, I can't remember. Amber, what you up to this week? I am doing a lot of unpleasant things. Um, 
So I am probably painting a house. But the inside? <laughs> yes, the inside of a whole house. Is what I'm doing. That's a lot of painting. That is a lot of painting. I did a lot of uh, caulking today. <laughs> she loves to cock. <laughs> and I'm so good at it, but my hands hurt from so much cock. <laughs> um, so, yes, paint will be coming this week, and I, I have a feeling that I will be mostly working, and when I'm not working, probably painting. Sometimes painting can be, for me, a little bit meditative. But sometimes it can also be very frustrating. Like, I also will be painting very soon. We have here in the very room where we're recording, some of the wall is brick, and some of it is uh, another material that we already painted. But the brick needs to be painted because it's just kind of these tan and brown bricks that don't really go with the paint. And so I'm going to do that. We've already done the same painting method on our fireplace and in our entryway, which is the next room over here. I'm going to be doing that, but some of these bricks, if you look at them, they have like deep striations in them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so those are, these, these flat bricks, those are fine. Those aren't frustrating. These bricks over here, oh, they're little bitches. <laughs> you just have to get in there deep. You have to get in there deep. Maybe I'll get out my cock. So, so yes, I'm going to be painting as well, actually. <laughs> what do you know? And yeah, that's pretty much... Uh, That'll take up at least a, a couple of days of my time. Yeah, I do find it meditative, but I also, I like listen to podcasts and stuff. And, and if you're doing it, you probably have children around and can't be listening to shows about gruesome murder. Or Yeah, not, not so much. And I'm also like, I, I might be borrowing a, a paint gun. Ah. And paint gun and toddlers don't mesh well. This sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, actually. And more so me, probably, than the kids, because I would be tempted to spray the kids <laughs> to keep them out, um, because I am very much a an impulsive child, and I'm probably going to get myself in more trouble with the paint gun than they would. <laughs> this should be entertaining. It, it'll be interesting. I'll tell you stories next week. <laughs> Send me pictures, else it will not do. Else it will not do. <laughs> So, yeah, that is uh, what we're doing this week. Both of us painting, interestingly. And uh, we, we hope that you are having a lovely week as well. Thank you very much for listening to our Filthy Witchy Words. And you can also look forward to, uh, this was a little early spooky ween <laughs> type. Okay, so it felt like fall to me and I went with it and ran with it just right off the cliff. <laughs> But we're only three weeks away from Spooky Ween. Is it really that close already? It's it, it's the fifth as we're recording this. So I think we have like three more regular when episodes before we start When does Spooky Ween start? Is Spooky Ween like October 1st is Spooky Ween? Yeah, we do We do, we do every October episode is, is a Spooky Ween episode. Wow. Okay. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I'm not prepared for it to be cold again, but it's already pretty cold. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I can actually hear it raining as we speak. I right know. now, it just started. So, see so us. Yes, uh, get excited about a spooky ween, and uh, we'll uh, see you next week. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are Catherine Curzon on Mental Floss. Got to take a deep breath before this one. The extraordinary life and character of Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire witch from the earliest thefts of her infancy, through a most awful course of crimes and murders till her execution at the New Drop near the Castle of York on Monday, the 20th of March, 1809. 12th edition. 
Vision of Britain Through Time, Ellen Castillo on Historic UK, Hilly Buchanan on Library of Congress, a couple Wikipedia articles that are linked, National Library of Scotland, whole packet via Gale Primary Sources and from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, the Lancaster Gazette, and the Morning Chronicle. That one rolled off the tongue, didn't it? Um, <laughs> Mental Floss by Catherine Curzon, the lineup by Danielle Kugler, on magazine.co.uk and murderpedia.org. She was born Mary Harker in Azenby, North York. It's going to take a moment to figure out how to say words. Just go with North Yorkshire because I, I was like, I'm not trying to say all these other words. I think it's Yorkshire, but... Oh, sure. <laughs> she was born Mary Harker in North Yorkshire around 760... 1768? <laughs> Mother Harker. 